en lasso. So we return now for the third time in this cycle. We'll come back for the return, actually, the second time, but come to the third time in this cycle of the cultivation of compassion. And as we first attended to kind of the level, addressing the level of blatant suffering, the suffering of suffering, yesterday, the suffering of change, going to a deeper dimension this morning or this afternoon, then we'll go to the deepest dimension. And it really is quite explicitly where there's a fusion of wisdom and compassion, because without wisdom, this level, this dimension of compassion would never arise. And that is our fundamental, utterly root vulnerability to suffering. Why sentient beings at all? Why do we need to suffer? And of course, in the Buddhist understanding, tracing right back to the teachings of the Buddha himself, this comes to this core sense of grasping, which all sentient beings share. So language users and non-language users, intelligent, unintelligent, animals, human, and so forth, all share this level of delusion in common. So it's really quite an extraordinary hypothesis to say that, you know, that all sentient beings, everyone who's not liberated, shares in common this innate tendency, inborn tendency, of grasping, of reification. Quite interesting to see the, uh, the Buddha's accounts, I mean, I think so profoundly experiential and ascertainable, of seeing exactly how this, this dimension of grasping occurs. Dharmakirti, the great logician, epistemologist, writes about this. It crops up very clearly in the Dzogchen tradition and, of course, elsewhere. Uh, but one can see this, one can actually observe the birth of delusion. You know, The question was raised, I think, just today. Somebody asked me, I think. Why is it? You know, Why are we prone to obscurations? Why are we prone to delusions? Do we acquire them? Is it always the parents' fault? Or is it the fault of mean, nasty modernity? You know, Do we have to learn all of this? And of course, the Buddhist view is, yeah, of course, there's a whole level of, a whole layer of acquired delusion, acquired mental afflictions, but there's another deeper dimension that is innate, it's inborn, and of course we carry it over. This is the bad news of reincarnation, that we carry over this level of delusion and other obscurations from lifetime to lifetime. But to observe how it arises, how it arises, well, in the Dzogchen, I'll just come from the Dzogchen, it, just, it strikes me as so profoundly experiential. The Dzogchen talks about how the coarse mind, the manifest ordinary mind, dissolves into the substrate consciousness. And then, actually, the substrate consciousness dissolves into the substrate. That one really threw me for quite a while. I said, I, I don't get that one. And I, I think I understand now. The substrate consciousness itself dissolves into the substrate. And I th if I think of an image, I think of putting a sword in a sheath. And when it's in the sheath, you don't see it anymore. It's covered. And I think this is exactly what happens. I think this is a pretty straight reading of the Dzogchen classic in this regard, is that the substrate consciousness slips into the substrate when you're not even aware of anything at all. So deep anesthesia, general anesthesia, just you're, you're blotto. What do you know while you're generally an, have your general anesthetic? Well, it's just nothing at all. So, in the Buddhist understanding, your consciousness has not really gone down to zero. 
So I will just assume that this iPhone, the clock, and so forth have zero. And there's nothing you can do to wake them up, so we've been through that. Um, but when you're not even a, you're not aware of anything, well, your consciousness has not gone to zero, but it's gone down to a little tiny pilot light, which is almost, it's analogous to a single, coming back to the issue of moments of cognition, a single two, two millisecond moment of cognition is cognition. What does it apprehend? Nothing. It's too short. It's just too fast. Get a cluster of them, and then they cog can cognize, but any one of them individually, at least for an ordinary sentient being, doesn't cognize anything. But they all have that little kind of a little pilot light and get them a cluster and lo and behold they can burst into the flame and actually illuminate and know something. So in deep, deep sleep or an anesthesia or what have you, other states, vegetative states perhaps, um, slip into the substrate where it's just blacked out. But then it can emerge from the substrate and the substrate consciousness can be actually conscious of the substrate. And now you know something, the substrate, right? That occurs explicitly in lucid, dreamless sleep. Quite a number of people have had that experience, very specific training for doing so. But out of the substrate, the substrate consciousness emerges. But there's nothing to deal with, that is nothing tangible, no clear objects. Oh, look at that, nothing to lunge onto and grasp onto. It's just this luminous vacuity. But then, and there's something of a symmetry in that. And that is, there's no left, right, up and down, there's no big, small, there's no center, no periphery. It's just a symmetry. And then, and I'm using this terminology very consciously from physics, because I think it's a wonderful analogy, very meaningful analogy. Then the symmetry is broken, one way or another. The symmetry may be broken by being in deep sleep, maybe lucid, deep sleep, and then the symmetry is broken, and suddenly, there arises a sense of I am. Out of that just that spaciousness, a coagulation, so to speak, a drawing together, a crystallization mm. into I am, a sense of being over here. And as that arises, then almost like a, uh, like a light and, its, and, and a shadow, as it, as it coagulates here on the subjective side, I am, then there arises the sense of space over there, Clearly something that, oh, that's space. And then in that space, uh, then out of the substrate consciousness arises something more crystallized called manas. And I think I've, I've referred to this in the past, cognition. And cognition is the object identifying level of consciousness. Where, oh, that doesn't even have to be linguist. It doesn't have to be language oriented, but it's just that. And so out of the substrate consciousness arises manas or, or mental cognition. And as that arises, appearances arise and mental cognition is ready to leap to it to recognize that object and that object over there as opposed to I over here and now the stage is set because the object seems to be over there the subject seems to be over here and now we kick that into gear and then we find some of those appearances and then the objects that we latch onto as we piece together appearances and say the object has this quality has this appearance has that appearance it has cognition is doing that and as soon as that arises, we find out pretty quickly that some of the appearances and objects that arise to awareness are pleasant. And that gives rise to, I want it. If I don't have it, I want it. I want to keep it. And so we get craving and attachment, and then some of them are unpleasant. Well, then aversion, anger, hostility, and so forth. And voila, samsara is all set to go. Okay. You made your little samsara toy. 
it'll just go forever. <laughs> you know? and, it, and then it just dissolves back into it. But even dissolves back into the substrate consciousness and the substrate can slip right back into, the substrate consciousness can slip right back into the substrate. But all the seeds for its germination, it's like, like you know, it is a self-replicating little instrument. All the seeds for replication, for redoing and redoing and redoing are all there. You just have to break the symmetry and out it comes. But it comes out of that grasping onto I am, which then, as Dharmakirti says, and then there is the object over there, the reification of both, the radical separation of subject and object, and me and you, my side and your side, Mexico and America, and so forth and so on, and then all mental afflictions arise, all unwholesome behavior arises, and samsara is perpetuated. So coming back to compassion then, compassion em embraces and attends to sentient beings suffering from blatant suffering, which nobody, needs, nobody requires any wisdom to pick that one up, and then looks with deeper, more penetrating vision and sees to the level of suffering of change, all of the suffering, the anxiety, and so forth that are bound up as soon as the pleasure we experience is saturated by and held together by attachment, and then going beyond that, fundamental, why are we prone to suffering? Why are we prone to suffering? So, I mean, these are such profound issues. Great, great minds throughout history, East and West, have grappled with this. Some have come to the conclusion uh, that human beings are just made to suffer. It's just part of reality. It's God's will, or it's just the mindless universe, or what have you. But if we look at this from the pers Buddhist perspective, there's no teleology to suffering. That is, there's no, that is, nobody made the universe so that we would suffer. Not God, not Higgs boson, or anything else. It happens, and this is why the Buddha never posited any beginning to samsara or said, this person did it to you, or this is why you got bored one day when you're enlightened and you decided to become unenlightened. Those kind of stories never come up. It's just, here it is. But what is interesting is to actually be able to observe the process of just being in an open symmetry and then the coagulation of grasping. And as soon as there's that grasping onto I and mine, now we're set, now we're vulnerable grasping onto my body, my mind, my feelings, my country, my, 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 all of that is a setup for suffering. So this is where the deepest level of compassion comes in. And it's just staggeringly optimistic because there's hardly any, I don't think there is any, any such view in the West. Christianity is optimistic, but it really is for the, for the next life. And that's wonderful. At least, you know, we're not screwed forever. Just have to wait uh, and be good. So certainly, Christianity offers an opti optimistic outcome, but you have to die first. And everything else that's this life-oriented, or this life-focused, is pretty pessimistic, saying, you know, that's just the way we are. That's the way we are. And even the great Augustine, St. Augustine said, and I think I can quote him almost verbatim here, because he was an ex a very accomplished contemplative in his own right, not just a great theologian and philosopher. But he said, the contemplative life is to, is to be begun in this life, but can be completed only in the hereafter. You have to get rid of the mortal shell, your body, because otherwise you're always blocked. And so my sense is, and I hope I'm not being judgmental here, but I think he simply took the limitation of his own meditative experience and universalized that for everybody else. I couldn't do it. Why should you be, why should you be able to do it? You know? And so Christian contemplatives have pretty much been stepping in line with that ever since. Um, Whereas Buddhism, there is no such line. The notion that actually even before we die, we may experience liberation ourselves, even to the point of 
rainbow body in this lifetime. Pretty spectacular. So, we'll return to the meditation. This time we'll, go to the, we'll seek to go to the deepest, the greatest depth. And by starting with ourselves, this is the really the fundamental, the core renunciation. Renunciation, or spirit of definite emergence. So sentient beings throughout the universe are experiencing suffering and then recoil and want to renounce suffering. Earthworms and hummingbirds and elephants and smart people and unintelligent people, everybody will see, see suffering and say, oh, I don't want that. So, and then we find somebody, something, something to blame, and then we recoil from the suffering itself and that which we identify as the source. In about half the cases in America, it's the spouse. <laughs> that is, the great liberation is divorce. <laughs> Yay, I found why I'm suffering. It's her fault. It's his fault. And all I need to be is free of that marriage, and then I'll find ah, a bit of relief anyway. And so there's one possibility. So that's just, you know, the rebound from the blatant suffering. And one may rebound from blatant suffering into dharma, and then until samsara looks a little bit better, and then one goes right back to samsara. But thanks a million dharma, you were good while you lasted. And then it's back to giving samsara a good college try. And I'll just give it a second chance. We've only been here since beginning this time. Maybe I'm going to be lucky the next time, and samsara is really going to work out well. You know? Let's hope. You know? And so there's always that eternal hope that samsara will actually turn out with a happy ending. And so that's addressing the issue of the suffering of change as we go in. But now we go down to the deepest level. So as we venture into the meditation, I'll come back to my, my favorite English language mantra. For the moment, what we attend to is reality. And they're just, I think there's such profound psychological truth in that statement from William James. And that is, as we attend more deeply and attend to the causality of how attachment gives rise to, sets us up for suffering, gives rise to suffering, then that becomes real for us. As we attend to the deeper level, the deepest level of delusion giving rise to suffering, as we attend to that for ourselves, it gives rise to, an, to renunciation. As we attend to, to, to this reality, that dimension for other sentient beings, it gives rise to compassion, boundless compassion, great compassion, bodhicitta, and on we go, because it's really, it's got to be tapping into that level of suffering and the causes of suffering. But from the moment what we attend to is reality, it's such a practical, practical maxim here, and we're explicitly really using that maxim, the, the, the truth of that, in meditation. And that is, if we ask, why do we sometimes so get so caught up, bound up, in our own individual concerns? This happens, to, I think, to a lot of us much of the time. You know, my job, my relationships, my ups, my downs, and this is what makes the mind so wobbly. Whether in meditation, meditation went really well until Saturday. It was really good until Tuesday. It was really good. It was really bad, terrible. I'm, it's te it was really terrible today. And then, it's called the shamata, the shamasha, shamata seesaw. Oh, let's play shamata. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so. This is where Lerup Lingba says, don't take a short view of meditation. Stand back, do, use the zoom, zoom lens, the wide angle, and see what's the big picture here. Are we gradually moving in the right direction? 
And so as we obsess, and it's so easy to do in retreat when we have so little else to do except for attend to how am I doing in my practice now? <laughs> you know? And so it's very easy to become self-centered because that's what we're paying attention to. You know? And that's what's real. You know? If I could give you the, the gift and the curse of clairvoyance so you could dip into each other's meditation for one day, you'd all feel a lot better. <laughs> At least most of you would. <laughs> And so, from the moment we attend to his reality, well, sometimes we can be having an, a lot of emotional ups and downs, up and down, just because that's all we're attending to. We're so self-centered, so focused, and it can be exacerbated when we get into Dharma, exacerbated when we meditate, and exacerbated all the more when we go into our own private practice. You know, my retreat, my retreat, my retreat, my meditation. So this is why it is so important that even in a practice that is really around shamatha, that we're, we're augmenting this, opening this, letting it breathe with bringing in as much as we can, the four immeasurables, because it expands the mind. And what we attend to becomes real. So in this practice, we'll, let's begin by all means for the, with ourselves. See if we can develop this compassion for ourselves, which is root renunciation, the genuine aspiration, the authentic motivation to achieve liberation. Because bear in mind, that's where compassion is catalyzed. That's where it's catalyzed, is seeing, ah, there is suffering, there is helplessness, that is, it can't do it all by itself, so let's, let's bring in the wisdom of, of the Dharma, bring in the teachers, bring in the Buddhas, and so forth, because we haven't been very successful liberating ourselves all by ourselves. That hasn't worked out too well. And so this is why that we have refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, in our own teachers, and so forth. And so there's that. But all important is not only that we can't just, you know, just do it all by ourselves, but the possibility of freedom. If we don't see that, compassion won't arise. The possibility of freedom. So this is deep. This is deep to look into our own minds, our hearts, our existence, and see, yes, I see the mental afflictions. I've seen them before. I've seen, I've seen the obscurations. Yep, seen them before. Five, 10, 84,000. Yep, we're, we're, we know each other very well. And to see beyond that, and yet that doesn't strike to the core. These mental afflictions go, don't go right down to baseline, down to the core. And because of the luminous, primordially pure nature of awareness, there is a possibility. And seeing that, and only with that intuition, that embracing of that reality, then genuine renunciation arises for oneself, and this deepest level of compassion arises for others. So, but then it's expanding. First of all, getting this going right to the gold ore right to the center within ourselves, and then extending outwards. And what I like to do in this session is extend outwards not only for the deepest level, but this is kind of the grand finale of our little sequence of meditations on compassion, that as we attend outwards, that we do attend to sentient beings who are suffering, simply are suffering, and then go deeper in the same meditation to suffering of change and attending to those experiencing that dimension, and then finally going to the deepest one but attending closely, and by so doing, the, the space of the mind, what is real for us, gets larger and larger and larger. Our own problems don't get smaller, they're just seen in a larger perspective. The, the, the sufferings of loved ones. I know some of you have loved ones who right now are going through real difficult times. No question. As we expand our awareness, it doesn't make their troubles any less significant. Just as significant as always. Just seen in a broader framework. And as we hold that larger space, 
then the mind, our own emotional balance is not so topsy-turvy, not so vulnerable. We care just as much. It's just as real, but it's held in a big space. I'll end with this story. You might, some of you might recall that 1992, when with Richard Davidson on that, on that very preliminary, very early pioneering research trip with Richard Davidson, Cliff Saron, or Greg Simpson, myself, there's somebody, oh, Francisco Varela, uh, the four neuroscientists, and I went up to the mountains. And you might recall the story, but it's worth telling again, and then we'll, we'll go to the meditation. But we showed one young, monk, one young yogi who had been all, up in retreat only for six years. He was just, you know, just kind of warming up. Solitary practice for six years. He was young, too. His life must be 30, 32, something like that. Young guy. Um, but he was happily in retreat. He'd, he'd, gotten, he'd gotten used to him. He was, he was in the groove. And these scientists set up... It was really quite charming. I mean, they're very well-meaning and so bright. Man, oh, man, they're smart. And so they set up their equipment, and they set up the video screen, and they had a, they had a video camera on his face because they wanted to study compassion here and study it by way of facial expression. I don't remember whether he had an EEG cap on it at the time. I don't, I don't recall. But they showed this monk. This was in 1992. They showed him video clip, a video clips that went on for some minutes from 1987, I'm almost certain that was the year, when there was some uprising in Hwasa, uh, monks. They did a peaceful demonstration. Uh, but the Chinese military came, on, came down on with a hammer. And there was video clips. Who, uh, it was video clips by the Chinese army themselves for their archival purposes, and somebody got it out, and it became public. But it's not happy video clip. It shows monks mercilessly beating, that is, the soldiers mercilessly beating and kicking a monk. I mean, just hammering him and kicking him on the ground. And he's going into fetal and they're kicking and beating and beating. And it's, just, it's pretty awful to see. <coughs> and so we showed this. We had his permission. He, he had, you know, there was no manipulation here. He had his permission. And of course, the Dalai Lama was fully supportive of the research that we were doing. Uh, but the video camera was on this monk's face as he was watching the screen and watching his monks, I mean, his, his brothers, you know, being beaten savagely. Really, it was really awful to see. And we, we all watched his face as the video camera was on his face as he watched this video. It didn't move. There was no facial difference. He just, he just watched it. He was there. He was engaging. He wasn't spacing out. But it was just... We saw it, no, but we couldn't see anything. And so we, when we turned off the, the little LCD, project, LCD screen, the computer, and then the scientist asked him, we didn't see anything. As you were watching this horrible footage, we didn't see anything. Uh, what were you experiencing? You experienced sadness, compassion, anger? We didn't see anything. And the monk said, I can't quote him verbatim, of course, it's 18 years ago, but the gist of what he said was, I was watching a video. First of all, I'm watching a video. Do you think there are little people in there? <laughs> you know, it's a video. There's nobody in there suffering. It's a, it's, it's a video. <laughs> so that was the first point. I'm not watching sentient beings beating other sentient beings. I'm watching a video. And of course, he knew this had taken place years earlier. But it was real. It wasn't, it wasn't a dramatization or something like that. It wasn't fiction. So the first point was, I'm watching a video, so why should I be 
showing some big emotion for watching a black and white video of monks, you know, no matter what's happening. But the second point, and this is one that really, really made a deep impression on me, was um, he said, I'm aware of this kind of suffering going on in the world all the time. There was nothing new here. This did not add to my knowledge. I'm holding this in my heart and mind. This type of suffering, it's not just in Tibet. How many places are beatings taking place right now? What country doesn't have some beatings taking place right now? The answer is Switzerland, but setting aside Switzerland. <laughs> Maybe even Switzerland, if, you know, if some foreigners come in, tourists. But he said, I'm aware of this all the time. And so seeing a video clip, uh, it's, I'm holding that. And so do, do I feel anything special? No, I'm, I'm aware of that suffering all the time. He has said, basically said, that's why I'm in retreat. To try to respond to and prepare my mind, cultivate my mind, so that I can more effectively respond to and try to alleviate the suffering of the world. But it's quite interesting that there wasn't the kind of the response one would expect of some big outflow of emotion. So, big mind, big mind. But then look at the symmetry there. What were we doing this morning? Attending to the space of the mind. How big is it? So there it's purely cognitive, just attending to the space of the mind. But how big is it? And now how big is the space of your heart? Right? The space of caring. The space of the world's suffering that you're attending to and care about. How big is that? Is it just in within your skin, within your own family, and so forth? Well, the whole thing here is they're called immeasurable, boundless. That the scope, the field of your compassion has no limits, it has no exclusion, it's open, it's all-embracing. And there is a key to equilibrium, to balance. But of course, that's exactly the words, equilibrium and balance. That's the very essence of shamatha practice, balancing the attention. Here we're balancing the heart. And of course, the mind and the heart are not different. Different facets of the same flow of consciousness. So, isn't Dharma wonderful? You know? and, and I'm not very just referring to Buddha Dharma, but really, just to talk about it makes me so happy to bring this to mind. It's such good Dharma, isn't it? That's not a sectarian thing, is it? I don't think so. I think this is just deep truth. And it's good. It's good truth. So let's practice truth. As you let your awareness descend into and fill the space of the body, settle and rest your body in ease, stillness, and vigilance. And let your respiration settle in its natural state, unimpeded and effortless.
and for a little while settle your mind in its natural state by way of mindfulness of breathing as you calm the conceptual turbulence of your own mind stream, finding balance. We don't need to learn how to wish to be free of suffering. That comes from our primal impulse of caring about ourselves, everyone else that we care about. Since we've all come to this retreat wishing to be freer of suffering, now let's bring the full might of our intelligence, imagination, memory, through penetrating as deeply as we can in terms of our own experience to address the question, what makes us vulnerable to suffer? Not only mentally, but physically as well. Why do we get caught in the grip of suffering and pain? And perhaps the key is in that noun, which is also a verb, and that is grip. We get caught in the grip because we grasp. Is that true or not? As you recall the suffering, the various types of suffering of body and mind that you've experienced over the course of your life, inspect closely. Can you trace it back to the core this impulse of grasping onto I am, onto I and mine, the bifurcation of subject and object, of I and you, giving rise to all other manner of mental afflictions, and hence all suffering, true or not. Investigate, look closely in terms of your own experience.
and consider the deepest level of your own meditative experience. As you attend closely, ever so closely, to the very nature of awareness itself, its own luminous nature, and whether you can draw on your own explicit experience or simply on intuition. You may ask of yourself, can you embrace as a working hypothesis something on which to base a life and your core aspirations on the affirmation that you have the potential to be free? Imagine, if you will, that primordial dimension of pristine awareness symbolically at your heart, with each in-breath, arouse the yearning. May I be free of all suffering, the suffering of suffering, suffering of change, this deepest, ubiquitous dimension of suffering of conditioning, conditioning by grasping. May I be free. I be free of suffering and its causes, and with each in-breath, imagine all these dimensions of suffering and its causes as a cloud of darkness, with each inhalation being drawn into this orb of light at your heart and being extinguished there without trace. Imagine being free, all veils of obscuration removed. Discovering who you really are at the deepest, most fundamental level.
than like a star that collapses into its nucleus first and then explodes into supernova, lighting up the night sky. Expand the field of your awareness. Now that you've drawn it inwards, expand outwards. As you expand the field of your awareness, let the specific focus of your attention move at will. Let your attention alight where it will, on individuals, on communities, on those suffering, for, uh, suffering from blatant suffering. Attend closely. Breathe in as you arouse the yearning. May you, like myself, be free of suffering and its causes. Letting your attention rove, attend more deeply to those suffering from the suffering of change, whose happiness is totally bound up by and sustained with attachment, a tragedy waiting to happen, a house built on sand. And practice as before.
as you attend to the world with the eyes of wisdom. Arouse the deepest level of compassion that each one may be free of suffering from its very root. Free and irreversibly free. Expand your awareness in all directions as we are surrounded by sentient beings and sharing this in common that each one wishes to find happiness in its causes, each one wishing to be free of suffering in its causes. And with each in-breath arouse this yearning, may we all be free of suffering and its most essential causes, and imagine drawing in the darkness of the world of each sentient being, and dissolving this into the inexhaustible sort of light at your heart, vanishing without trace,
within the context of a non-lucid dream, when we are dreaming and don't know that we're dreaming, all the suffering of ourselves and others seems so utterly real. And within the context of the dream, it's as real as it gets. Suffering still hurts, physical and mental. But when you become lucid, everything's different. And when you awaken, all the suffering of the dream is seen from a profoundly different perspective. Imagine for a moment that you are awake, attending to this dreamlike reality in which self and other all appear as if they existed from their own side, by their own inherent nature, everything all too real. But imagine being lucid and imagine being awake. with no inherently existing subjects or objects, no I or you. And arouse, if you will, the aspiration, may we all wake up and be free. the aspiration and let your awareness rest in its own nature. And be free.
Basso. Here's a very, looks like a very, I haven't read any of these yet, but here's, it looks like a very practical question. On the topic of the space between thoughts, I've heard that some teachers in modern times have given the instruction that between the vanishing of one thought and the rising of the next is the Dharmakaya. Oh, gone into deep waters here. This has prompted other teachers to strongly warn their students against following this instruction, calling it dancing on the pages of the texts. Did this false instruction arise from some teachers failing to distinguish correctly between relative and ultimate usages, and in some texts of, su of terms such as gunji, or the uh, alaya, the substrate, and semgingo, which is the essential nature of the mind, or for other reasons, or is, or is there more to this issue? So we've, it's a practical question, but it's very deep waters. Wonderful question. And it's anonymous, so keep it that way. Since I have no choice, perfectly happy to. Um, between the vanishing of one thought and the rising of the other, of the next is the Dharmakaya. Well, in a way, that's very safe. That's a very safe, safe statement. <laughs> pointing me, I mean, we're speaking within the context of Buddha Dharma here, right? Mahayana Buddha Dharma. Exactly point to me where the Buddha Dharmakaya is not present. Between Carissa's feet is the Dharmakaya. Ooh. You know, it's everywhere present. So it's going to be present between thoughts too. It's going to be present right in the thoughts of, will they serve ice cream tonight? And if so, will it be another kind of flavor? In the midst of that thought is Dharmakaya. You know, so Dharmakaya is everywhere. But of course, this is a serious question. <coughs> and that statement does come up. And it's sometimes used as a strategy, attending closely to the intervals between thoughts. I've read some, some cases or heard some teachings were saying, if you really want to ascertain Rikpa, attend closely, really scrutinize those intervals between thoughts. Now, is that just misguided thinking? Is it just, you know, just wrong teaching by deluded yogis? It can be. It can be. But it's not that simple. And that is consider when thoughts do arise. Okay, whatever the thought is. But a thought arises and it's got some sticky quality to it. We latch onto it. It's exactly that time when grasping is there. It obscures everything. It obscures the substrate. It obscures the nature of reality because we're locked into a little mini samsara of getting in this cognitive fusion of getting immersed into a thought. So that's really quintessential samsara. My world has now become my thought, which I slipped into. I'm like in a little tiny bubble, right? The thought has occurred. I slipped into it. Grasping take, took place. So everything's obscured. I mean, that's a little quintessence of a non-lucid dream, right? So if that's kind of just core delusion, then intervals between core delusion will be a little bit less obscured than core delusion. So a little bit of glimmering, a little bit of, well, at least between thoughts, at least I'm not latching onto anything or being absorbed in it. So maybe the, the obscurations on the panes of the window, the window panes, are a little bit less. Maybe, maybe a bit more access to deeper dimensions of consciousness during the intervals. Maybe get a, a clear glimmering of the substrate. Because after all, if I'm just still glomming onto thoughts, grasping onto them, I'm not going to be the sub substrate. I'm completely latching onto the objects arising within the space of the mind. So it's a little bit less explicit delusion. It can be. Now, of course, you can just space out, dull out, be ignorant. And, uh, so that's Dharmakaya, huh? I thought it was more, be more interesting than that. <laughs> you know? So... There's a truth there in the sense that this does give us a little parting of the clouds of grasping onto thoughts. And if you can maintain clarity, which is exactly what they're suggesting that we do, don't dole out, don't space out, attend closely to these intervals, 
then, number one, is there Dharmakaya there? Of course there is. It's everywhere. Does that mean that as soon as you start doing that and you see that vacuity, that is Dharmakaya? Well, of course not. Otherwise, you'd be Buddha the first time you sat down and looked at the interval between thoughts. It's silly. But it will open up, as we do this practice exactly as we did this morning, it will open up a clearer and clearer vision of substrate. Of the substrate. Well, that's the, of course, this relative space of the mind. And in multiple Dzogchen texts, it says the substrate consciousness, the substrate, this is an effulgence, a springing forth, an emergence from Dharmakaya, but veiled with ignorance. That's why, real, that's why realizing the substrate is not equivalent to realizing Dharmadhatu, while realizing substrate consciousness is not equivalent to realizing Rikpa. Now, having said that, I was just reading Dujum Lingma's account of this recently. I go back to his Vajra essence a lot. Um, and he was saying, when he, when he exact that reference, like Penchen Rinpoche, when he was saying, now that you've realized substrate, you've realized the semging o, the essential nature of the mind. He said, that's what it is. Now, some people, having accessed this, they call this, and then they come in with these grandiose titles from Mahamudra and Dzogchen. This is non-meditation, this is Dharmakaya, this is this, that, the other, the other thing. All, you know, very, very highfalutin, esoteric, mystical terminology. But he said, meanwhile, it's just the essential nature of the mind. It's just substrate consciousness. But it's a step in the right direction. So I think there's nuance here. Uh, there, there's a whole history, and it doesn't, it's not confined to Tibet. It goes back to India, and it goes back to the Theravada tradition of Theravada, of Theravada yogis realizing the bhavanga, the brightly shining mind that adventitiously, adventitiously gets obscured by mental afflictions, and then the mental afflictions subside, and then they come in at the end. But that brightly shining mind realizing that, thinking Eureka, this is Nirvana, or this is Nibbana, you know. So... <laughs> it's been on whether you have a Pali enlightenment or a Sanskrit enlightenment, you know, either way. Uh, but that's been going on for centuries in the Theravada tradition, tapping into Bhavanga and thinking you're enlightened. And then the great commentators say, no, 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 not so fast there. I know it looked like Nirvana, but it's not. It's just the Bhavanga. Now get to work. Start Vipassana or Vipassana. So it's interesting. This is really a, quite a universal pitfall or trap. Slipping into bhavanga, thinking it's nirvana. Slipping into substrate consciousness or the subtle continuum of consciousness, thinking this is emptiness. Why not? It's luminous, it's empty, it's brilliant, it's, it's joyful. It's, looks like emptiness to me, but it's not. Tsongkhapa is very clear on this. Penchenaboche, the, the Nyingma tradition, the Sakyabas are not left out. And so there's the deal. It's a step in the right direction, but it's very easy unless you have a bigger picture, unless you've been well instructed to conflate this. But is this a skillful means? Is it useful to attend to the, those intervals between the vanishing of one thought and the rising weather? Yeah. Just don't superimpose a bunch of mystical jargon on, you know, on what is really a relative experience. At the same time, if you say don't do it at all because some people do it wrong, well, that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. This is a skillful technique. Second question. You explained in a previous retreat that a subtle form of conceptual structuring still conditions the mind at the time of access concentration. Yep, I stand by that. In the form of bliss, clarity, and non-conceptuality, being, being perceived as distinct and separate characteristics of one's experience. Exactly right. Well articulated. And that is the reason for that, that and, and that this is the reason, and that it is for this reason that simply abiding in access concentration or the substrate consciousness is not a liberative practice. All very well said. 
So it's just simply hanging out, and this again, this is true in the Theravada, the Mahayana, Galupa, Nyingma, everybody agrees on this, just achieving access or shamatha, resting in the bhavanga or the substrate consciousness, doesn't go anywhere. I mean, congratulations, you got there. Now, you know, move on, move on. It doesn't liberate. Does this mean that were the characteristics of bliss, clarity, and non-conceptuality perceived as being indivisible, this would qualify as the authentic state of texture? Not necessarily. Texture at the break, direct cu uh, breaking through or cutting through the breakthrough to pristine awareness. If they were seen as indivisible, not necessarily. No, everybody can blur. Everybody can blur. It doesn't take great wisdom to blur. It's called confusion, you know, fusing together. So if you, if you came out of shamatha and it just felt blissful and luminous and non-conceptual. Does that mean you now have to retake it to Rikpa? No, it just means you blurred them. Right? So no, it's, it's not that simple. It's, but, the, but everything there stated is correct, and that is, it's quite clear, it's uniformly, everybody says it. This is a contemplative truth, a discovery replicated many times in multiple traditions, that achieving shamatha, on the one hand, we say it's non-conceptual. They say that in the Theravada, javana, activities of the mind have subsided, they've gone flat. Does that mean it's absolute vacuum of concepts? No, it doesn't. It just means they've gone rather implicit, mm, how do we say, precognitive, quiet, but nevertheless not absolutely dormant. And that's why there can be attachment while resting in the substrate consciousness. The tentacles of, I want, I want to keep, I want it to luminosity by some temperament, more attracted to the luminosity, some to the bliss, some to the non-conceptuality, but there will be differences. Not everybody has the same, how do you say, response to experiencing the substrate consciousness, some clinging, craving more for one or the other. So it's not a matter of simply seeing them as distinct or seeing them as all blended, like, you know, clarity, bliss, non-conceptuality, soup, put into a blender, hit high, and now you get rikva. Not that. What it is is something much more subtle and really challenging. And you, can, you might get some intimation of how subtle just by exercising your imagination. Imagine you've just hit the jackpot of bliss. You don't need any sexual partner. You don't need food. You don't need music. You don't need enter entertainment at all. You come right to the nucleus of bliss. And you just, as, as Dujum Lingba says, oh, bliss like the warmth of a fire. Just boom, there you are. You just come to... Bliss central, you know, and you're just hanging out there. Wow, is this better than not bliss central, you know? And you've also come to luminosity central. Oh, I get thrills too. I'm blissful and it's, it's just marvelous, totally awake, wow. And I wanted serenity, I got that too. Oh, shazam, this is just great. Everything was cracked up to be, <laughs> you know? And I want it and I want to keep it, <laughs> you know? Come out of meditation, Guruji, how do I keep it? I want to just hold on to it forever. That's craving, it's clinging, it's grasping. Rikpa, man, oh man, it's the one taste of samsara nirvana. Rikpa is that which is equally present in the Vichy hell and the pure lands. Animal, human, deva, you, all of it. Equally present, equally present in nirvana and samsara. Rikpa is equally present in all of them. So if you're resting in rikpa, you really have fathomed it. You are a vidyadhara. Vidya means rikpa. Vidya is Sanskrit for rikpa. Dara means one who holds, one who's mastered, one who is at home in. This is where I live. Vidyadhara. 
one who can make such a claim authentically, you're resting in the dimension of awareness where you've gone beyond the, the dichotomy, the duality of samsara and nirvana. Right? It's equally present in both. And as you emerge from that, as being a vidyadhara, as you emerge from that, and you're attending to the world of phenomena, you see them with clearer and clearer precision, acuity, clarity, depth. They're all equally, equally, the one taste of samsara nirvana, all appearances are equally displays of rikpa, of your own rikpa. Not somebody else's, nobody's doing it to you. They're all displays equally of your own rikpa. Boy, is that different than I strived and I strived and I strived, finally achieved shamatha. Boy, now I've got bliss, luminosity, and clarity, or non-conceptuality. Happy am I, how can I keep it? That's just holding on to one little kind of nook and cranny of samsara and saying, I want to hold on for dear life. Please, how can I keep this? Hold on to this. Boy, is this deeper. So how do you slip through? How do you, and this is exactly it. This is why shamatha is so important. Gadab Dorje, the founder, the first teacher of Dzogchen in this whole historical era, said, what are you breaking through in Tech What are you breaking through? What's the answer? Substrate. Not your ordinary psyche. That's a piece of cake. You don't need Dzogchen to break through your psyche. You need shamatha. Or you need to fall asleep, whichever comes first. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Deep sleep, you've broken through your psyche. Congratulations, you know. Wake up and there's a whole band. Do, 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 do. You slipped in, you know, you broke through your psyche. Congratulations, welcome back to your psyche. You know. But imagine slipping into that warmth, that, that bliss like the warmth of a fire, clarity like the, the breaking of the dawn, non-conceptuality like an ocean unmoved by waves and relinquishing all preference. You've striven maybe for months to achieve shamatha. Finally, nine stages unpacked, unrolled, unfolded. You've achieved it. You got all three. Whether you see them distinctly or all blended into one, whatever, it's wow, isn't this cool? And now, the only challenge to do now is relinquish all grasping onto bliss, non-conceptuality, luminosity. Relinquish all grasping, all preference. Relax more deeply. You're so uptight, you shamatha people. Always grasping, grasping, grasping. <laughs> Just now release the grasping onto bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. Just like, I don't care anymore. Just, but without doping out, you're just luminous, releasing all grasping. Inverting awareness right in upon itself. And break through. That's a big difference. Shamatha is with grasping, rikpa is without grasping. So it's simple. Is there a non-discursive approach that allows for the subtle conceptual structuring to break down while one abides in access concentration so that one is able to go directly from the achievement of shamatha into texture practice without first going through the discursive methods of shamatha? Say again. Vipassana. What did I say? Shamatha? I'll read it again. Yeah, this is very well articulated, so it's written. If I misread it, I'll just read it again. Is there a non-discursive approach that allows for the subtle conceptual structuring, including reification, to break down 
while one abides in excess concentration so that one is able to go directly from the achievement of shamatha into tekchut practice without first, first going through the discursive meditations, the investigation and so forth of vipassana practice. It happens. Yeah, so it's not an opinion. Uh, if it's an opinion, it's not my opinion, it's Padmasambhava's opinion. So I put a lot of more weight in his than I do in mine. Uh, but you know it already. You know it there. It's right there in, in phase two of the four phases of shamatha without a sign. When he gives a simple practice, and it is breathtakingly simple, of inverting awareness right in upon the agent that is releasing and contracting, releasing and contracting awareness. And he says, you may even identify rikpa. You may. It is, does happen. Now, having said that, you may also hear one paragraph of the Buddha's teachings and achieve nirvana right on the spot. It does happen. It happened to Bahia, remember? One paragraph, whoop, he was finished, he was liberated, became an arhat. Uh, so it does happen. It does happen that people can do something very simple. And boom, they achieve liberation. We get this in the Dzogchen tradition. We find it in contemplative traditions around the world. Some people, there's just so little dust on the eyes. They're so ripe. Or there's a nice word in Tibetan, leto. Leto. Le is karma and to is, uh, is something left over. That there's so much momentum from their past life. Maybe they just spent the last 40 years in Dzogchen retreat. And that's the little baby that was born. You know, the baby just finished a 40-year retreat, nine months swallow-up, and is ready to get back into the saddle. You know. And so maybe that'll be sufficient. It does happen. Generally speaking, the time-tested tradition, you know, is shamatha, and then the vipassana to break apart the reification, especially reification of my mind, break that apart, dissolve that reification, see, directly perceive the emptiness of your own mind, extend your awareness outward to all objects, all appearances, ascertain their emptiness of inherent nature, and now that everything is in some way softened up, then you can come back and break through. The reification makes it so gnarly, so tough, that it's hard to break through, but it does happen. In which case, yes. And so, again, His Holiness Dalai Lama is commenting on this, the classic sequence, Shamadeva Vipassana, and then Tekchu. On the other hand, there's Ringotuku. And I don't know him well, but I've met him a few times. He's a lovely Lama. I think very qualified, Kagyut Nyingma tradition. Uh, incredibly sweet, enormously humble. I'm hoping to have him here, that he'll teach here one day. And he expressed, and I've already invited him. And so I'm hoping he'll come here one of these days. Wonderful teacher. And he's made the comment, I'm sure there are many others as well, because he's not a renegade, um, but made the comment that it just differs from one person to the next. And that is some people will gain realization of emptiness first and realize, realization of rikpa second. Classic. That's what the Dalai Lama refers to. And you've heard me say it now innumerable times. Uh, just to give the most re re uh, recent reference, I was reading through or checking through the uh, Spacious Path to Freedom. A Spacious Path to Freedom by Kama Chakmet Rinpoche, 17th century, major patriarch of the Kagyu and the Nyingma traditions. The Union of Mahamudra and Dzogchen, really formidable scholar, contemplative. And um, there it was. You know, it was just this classic sequence. I mean, I just, I just thought back to, wow, Gyatran Rinpoche really wanted me to get the message. Because he taught me for 10 years, after 20 years of Galupa and Theravada and Samsakya. But boy, did he want me to get the message. Because that's the first text that he taught. I was translating for him, so I had the double, double bonus. I, got, I was re 
receiving teachings and teaching at the same time, teaching at the same time, his words through my mind, and then just translation, you know, from Tibetan to English. But there it was. He went right over, he leapt over the preliminary practices and said, people know the preliminary practice. You don't need to translate that again. There's a lot of translations on preliminary practices. We went directly into kind of a third of, a third of the way through this classic text, the Union of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. We went directly to a beautiful little quintessential meditation, Avalokiteshvara. Beautiful. It's really, really, it's just beautiful. And so students of uh, Lama Michael Conklin, I mean, this is right there, and so many others as well. Uh, Tony Karam, of course, Chenrezig is very, very central. But there it was, it's just nucleus. Nothing elaborate, no big stages, this stage is that, just bring in the divine pride all around compassion. And then the next chapter, Shamata. Next chapter, Vipassana. Next chapter, identifying Rikpa. Next chapter, stabilizing Rikpa. Next chapter, it goes right on, Shamata, Vipassana, Tekchut, Turtgel. Wow! That's the first, first text he ever taught me that I translated for. Like, you get the message? And then we went and we went on to natural liberation. Second big text he taught me, I translated his wonderful commentary. The preliminaries, yes. What then? Shamada, Vipassana, Tekchut. But we will we'll weave in dream yoga and some other really cool things as well. But it goes into Tekchut, Tutgel, and then rainbow body. Then we went back and did Karma Chakma again, naked awareness. Went right back to the same sequence. Hammered it in in these, uh, these appendices auxiliary additional chapters at the end, just in case you didn't get it the first time through, I'm going to take you through again, just to make sure you really got it. Gatron must have been telling me, because he taught every line, the whole oral transmission, everything. Did he get it? So he translated those three texts. And then I came back to him and said, Rinpoche, I've still got time. Would like to translate, like, to translate something else? He said, well, there's a text called the Vajra Essence. There it is, Shamata Vipassana Tekchut Tokyo. With stage of generation and completion there, but not absolutely essential for everybody. So there's a sequence on the one hand. Times are going. But coming back to Ringotuku, he said, Of course, there's no question. He's not going to refute Kama Chakmet. That's a core teacher of his whole lineage, as it is for Chukinima Rinpoche, Mingyur Rinpoche, Sokni Rinpoche. They're all exactly from that lineage, Ganying lineage. Gagyupa Nyingma Mahamudra Dzogchen, exactly their lineage. This is their home base. Kama Chakmet, he's central. And my own teacher, Gyatranabuchi, is a lineage holder for that tradition. Beyul, the Beyul tradition. But Mingyur, uh, not Mingyur, uh, the other one, uh, Ringutuku, Ringutuku. Kamet, yeah, of course that happens a lot. It all makes perfectly good sense. But there are occasions where people will go and have a realization of Rikpa first and realization of emptiness second. That happens too. It differs from one person to the next. And I thought about that in terms of lucid dreaming, dream yoga. So imagine, so just in the flight of imagination, but see parallel. And that is, imagine you're in the midst of a dream. I won't give the whole scenario, I have a whole story I tell here of meeting a guru in the dream and then you know, getting instruction. But imagine you're in the midst of a, of a, a dream, but you don't, you're, you don't know you're dreaming, but you have a strong inclination for dharma. So in the midst of the dream, you find a teacher. The teacher teaches you renunciation, preliminary practices. You're doing your prostrations and vajrasattva within the dream. And one day I hope I'll, I'll become awake, whatever that means. I don't have a clue, but I really want it. And 
you know, go through preliminaries, and then your, your Lama teaches you, you know, shamatha. And within this, you, of course, we know the person's dreaming, but you don't, you know, you're in the and there you are, oh, achieving shamatha. Getting glimpses of the substrate, which is really cool, you know, every reality vanishes, whole oh, substrate consciousness, and it really is. Right? And then you come out, and then you're back to reality, which is the dream, right? And then you meet with the Madhyamaka, guru, somebody teaches you Vipassana, hardcore, muscular, real deep, Madhyamaka, Vipassana. And within this context, your reality, which we're gonna, we being awake call a dream, then within that context, then the guru counsels you, gives you advice in meditation. Okay, now investigate. Is there really a self from your own side? Do you really exist from your own side? Your mind really here from its own side. Investigate phenomena from objective side. Are they really inherently there from their own side? And guide you through step-by-step Vipassana meditation. And they're in the midst of, again, we're calling the dream. This person says, reality, seeing that, ah, an emptiness of self, an emptiness of my mind over here, the subject. And then, whoa, none of these phenomena appearing. They're all like a dream. You know, we laugh because we're awake, but no, it's, it's like a dream. Everything appears to exist from its own side, but it's not really. It's just an appearance. It's a delusional appearance. Whoa. Emptiness of subject, emptiness of object, emptiness of subject, ob- object dichotomy. This is so like a dream, man. This is really like a dream. I go into deep meditation, emptiness, it's space-like. I come out, it's dreamlike. You come back to the guru, you know, guru, this is really like a dream. And then the, the guru turns out to be a Dzogchen master. And he said, it's not really like a dream. It is a dream. Takes out his sandal, whacks you in the face, and you wake up, and you become lucid, and you recognize, oh, it's not like a dream. This is a dream, and I'm the dreamer, and you're no longer identifying with the person in the dream, even conventionally. Because your perspective is that of waking consciousness brought into the dream. Now, that makes really good sense, doesn't it? It wasn't wasn't ridiculous. But now, could it happen that in the midst of your non-lucid dream, you're practicing? Let's let's imagine you lay a good foundation, you achieve your shamatha, but maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe you just have some degree, in which case you have to go back to your foundation later. But let's imagine you do this well. You develop a foundation, shamatha, with ethics and all of that, of course. But the first lama you meet is a Dzogchen, a Dzogchen lama. And you've not done Vipassana. Everything still appears to be totally real, objectively, subjectively. Everything is being reified. But somehow, the lama gets a really cool sandal (laughs) and just whacks you at the right time in the right place, you know? And says, wake up! This is a dream. And suddenly... And maybe he levitates while he does it. That would catch your attention. It's just something happens. like, And suddenly, in a finger snap, you recognize you are dreaming without having realized that no phenomena subjectively or objectively exist by their own inherent nature. Suddenly, you just recognize that you're dreaming. You become lucid. And let's imagine you become really lucid. And in fact, then you're just entering into lucidity, recognizing the dream as the dream, being awake, within the dream, you sustain that. You have broken through. You've broken through the dream to waking consciousness without dissolving the dream. Let's imagine now you just sustain that. You simply sustain that. 
that ongoing flow, whatever happens in the dream, you just sustain that perspective of waking consciousness. And as you do so, as the full import, the full implication of this actually is a dream, and I know it directly because this is a dream, there's no possibility of the phenomena appearing over there to actually exist over there. And there's no possibility of I, the persona in the dream, really being over here. Because you are lucid, it naturally and inevitably follows that nothing is inherently existent. Because if it did, you wouldn't be dreaming. But you are dreaming, and you know it. Therefore, the realization of rikpa could give rise to realization of emptiness. And that was what Ringo Tuka was suggesting. So, I love the freedom from dogmatism there. Is attending closely to people's experience and taking it seriously. <clears throat> if one receives uh, pointing out instructions from a Dzogchen master and one has experience of luminosity, calm, and stillness, how to know if one experienced rikpa and not only substrate consciousness? Well, I think I've alluded to that a little bit earlier, and that is when you come out of an experience of rikpa, if it's really authentic, it's deep, then you will come out of that with a sense of the one taste of phenomena happy, sad, I mean, you just, you are transcending hope and fear in a finger snap, because you're seeing the one taste. You're seeing the one taste. Somebody asked me just recently, what's the cause of it all? What's the cause of it all? How, you know, how do we first get obscured? A two-year-old may be obscured. Well, of course, I can come from past lives, but then they say, well, yeah, but why did that two-year-old get obscured in the last life? Or how many, how did we get obscured, whatever happened? How did, how did it take place? And Dzogchen addresses that, not historically, at some Garden of Eden in the ancient past when we somehow you know, ate the wrong fruit or what have you, but actually explores this experientially, how in the present moment samsara is born and watching it. When did, when did, when did samsara begin? Right now. It always begins right now, right? So it's hard to fathom, though, that is, where did this delusion come from? And the Buddha, of course, doesn't point any point in time. This is when you weren't deluded, but this is when you got deluded, and this is why you chose to become deluded. It never, it's never there, not in Dzogchen, not in anywhere else. But there may be, and so I think the real issue here is we're asking a question, which is a perfectly good question. But if it were a kind of question that could be satisfactory and satisfactorily answered conceptually, that answer would already be on the table. And it isn't. And therefore, it's one of the questions that can be asked conceptually, but for which there is no satisfying conceptual answer. But maybe there's a hint. Maybe a hint. It's not an answer. Because, again, you're all listening with a conceptual mind as I'm speaking with a conceptual mind. The answer is there's no answer to that question. Deal with it. There is reality of suffering. You can either go along with it or you can try to be free. But if you're going to wait, I'm not going to start practicing Dharma until you give me a right answer. <laughs> I want to know how I first got deluded, and, and I'm waiting. Well, you'll wait, you'll get sick, old, die, and then you'll have missed your chance. You know, so we can either practice Dharma or not. That's our freedom. But this statement from Dingo Kenzi Rinpoche is really quite enormous. And it's representative of... Dzogchen Vajrayana. 
And that is when you are coming to the very culmination of the path, highest level, Ayyabodhisattva. Remember the statement, yeah? You realize, Rikpa, you've, you've gone through stages and stages, multiple levels of breaking through, ascending along the path, the texture, the, break, the, the breakthrough, the direct crossing over. You're coming to the culmination, the final grand finale, just before full awakening manifests. At that point, when you're right on the cusp, just ready to slip right over into fully awake. What Dingo Kinzunabuchi said, at that point, you have no preference. You have no preference for nirvana over samsara. No hope, no fear, no desire, no aversion. No preference for nirvana over samsara. It's all even. There's a perspective that is unimaginable, but he's sharing it with us. So this is the fundamental difference. Uh, see, pragmatically, what are the effects, lingering effects, post-meditative effects, when you come out of meditation, you're engaging with the world of this and that. Are you seeing the one taste of phenomena? Or are you seeing, whoa, oh, this isn't shamatha. I want to eat and go back to my cushion. Right. That's shamatha. Whereas, as you're slipping beyond any dichotomy between meditation and post-meditation, any dichotomy of samsara, samsara nirvana, getting the one taste, then that's rape. What is the phenomenological difference between the experience of the former and the latter? How can a, be a, be a, be how can a beginner distinguish these? <laughs> you can't. That's easy. <laughs> but if you experience shamatha first, and then you know what that's like. And if you have a good teacher, the teacher will tell you you're not finished and lead you on beyond that. And then you'll know. For example, Tsongkhapa speaks again with such enormous clarity. Oh, we're out of time. Um, between the bliss and the prashrata, the pliancy, the malleability, the buoyancy, and so forth, but the bliss of shamatha versus the bliss of vipassana. The bliss of shamatha is very cool. You'll really like it. But when you go beyond that, having had that, and you experience the bliss arising from the realization of vipassana, you see, oh, another whole order of magnitude. Now that I've had the, the last, this, oh, this is different. This is really different. If you'd not had shamatha, then you wouldn't know. But if you had one, and then you see, oh, that was, that was different. Now, you won't be able to tell that to anybody. Tell that to a person who's not experienced shamatha or vipassana. You tell me, what was it like? Well, it felt really good. <laughs> what else are you going to say? You know, it's inexpressible to people who haven't had it. And to people who have had it, they don't need to express it. He said, oh, you got shamatha? Cool. Me too. Vipassana? Oh, yeah. Cool, wasn't it? <laughs> that's pretty much. That's, that's enough. <laughs> you know? That was all hypothetical, by the way. And, so, and then if you've realized on top of that rikpa, You have to have the bliss of shamatha and then no bliss of vipassana, and then you know the bliss of rikpa, immutable bliss. Then you'll know it yourself. And that's the only way to know it. Let's see if there's time. Here's one from Paula. But I think I don't want to really run on, in which case I will address this. This is not a question, it's a letter from me. That makes it easy. I will read it carefully. I'll read it carefully. Oh. Hola, so. The Dharma should be fun. Not only at the end, but as much as we can if we can enjoy the process. Not wait. 
but just take delight in every moment that we have opportunity to practice Dharma and think this is the right direction. This is a path. This is not spin cycle. And just take delight in that. I'm on a path here. I'm getting more relaxed. That's a path. Be happy with that. Mudita. Empathetic joy. Okay. Enjoy your practice.